Moncrief on News Talk. We are coming to you today from the beautiful Guildhall in Derry City with thanks to discovernorthernireland.com. Choose your next giant adventure and embrace the warm welcome of Northern Ireland. And we do have a great prize to give away uh, in Northern Ireland. We're going to do that later on in the show. Now, as you can imagine, a lot of the talk here this week concerns the Windsor framework and thus the continuing paralysis of the Stormont government. Mark Durkin is former leader of the SDLP and former Deputy First Minister. Mark, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Sean. Uh, the fact that there has been no Stormont for such a long time. How does that affect a city like Derry? Uh, It affects a city like Derry hugely and and the wider region because simply decisions uh, can't be made. And it's not just that decisions can't be made on a day-to-day basis. Longer-term planning uh, can't be made. So all sorts of different policy issues are kind of half on hold. Uh, It's very hard to get proper budgetary indications out of departments or, or anything else. So the normal things that people would say, well, we can know we can work on that project and the funding will be coming on stream in a year's time and we'll get development in two years' time. None of that uh, is there. So there are very few issues around public services, around public policy, and very few issues in terms of local need that you would ask about where the answer doesn't involve the words, it all depends. And it all depends mm. on getting an executive back up and running. It all depends on getting a budget and a programme for government uh, in shape. So we are suffering in the absence. I know people can slag off the politicians and say, oh, they're not at work, and would you tell the could you know the difference? Anybody trying to tackle serious issues, and particularly if you're trying to tackle them on a long-term basis, knows the difference. Yeah, so does that mean there are a number of projects that are just effectively on hold until the executive comes back? Well, it means that serious strategic issues that you want to talk about. Your question is, who are you talking to uh, about Mm. those? Because the fact is, the British ministers in the NIO, they're not meant to have any real say in relation to what's going on in the departments. The Northern Ireland departments, who are creatures of devolution, uh, essentially under the template of the agreement, uh, they are run by civil servants, but those civil servants are limited in the decisions they can take. And the very fact that they don't have the normal budgetary ambit, they don't have it told to them, well, you have the full budget of 100% and you have that over so many years and you can plan. So they are caught very much on a sort of a care and maintenance basis. And previous rulings from the previous period when we didn't have an executive here were telling the civil servants that you can't use the absence of a minister to go ahead and take decisions as though you were a minister or had a minister Mm. or as though there was an executive. So you end up that there's a legal question mark all the time. So you find yourself talking to civil servants saying, go on, you can take that decision. (laughs) And they're saying, no, really, we can't. And then, of course, there will be another time where people will question what gave the right to civil servants to take a decision that they said they had to take in the exigency of these circumstances. Oh, God, so you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, really. well, Well, that's where the civil servants... Uh, are caught. And so there are many good ideas. There are policies that the civil service themselves, you know, recognise that ministers and the executive had previously committed to. But the detail of how to implement or deliver those policies maybe wasn't fully uh, agreed. And particularly the, you know, the budget cover uh, for that wasn't necessarily agreed. So you find that a lot of projects and ideas that have been agreed in principle in the past are still caught 
on hold. Mm. And when you look at the scale of the problems we have in terms of the health service, when you look at the scale of the challenges uh, in education, when you look at the uh, housing problem and, and housing need, the idea that you can just uh, manage things on a care and maintenance, no new policy, no new direction basis is folly. Do you think then a lot of those decisions might start to be made after the local elections in May? Well, when we, perhaps you know the, uh, the well, executive we, might reform. Yeah, well, it, it means getting the institutions in the phrase back up uh, mm. and running. So we need uh, an executive uh, reformed. We need ministers uh, back in those departments. We need those ministers talking to uh, assembly committees. We need the assembly committees very active. Uh, in bringing in uh, different policy stakeholders, but bringing in the departments themselves. And, of course, we need a meaningful programme for government and hopefully a budget uh, that matches it. Mm. But would you anticipate the DUP might change their position somewhat after those local elections, presuming that they're they're not massacred by the TUV or anything? Well, I wouldn't have seen the DUP have changing their position that much uh, before the election, I, I think once the framework, the, way the Windsor framework came out, we were always going to be treated to a degree of performative politics, where the DUP. Who were they say, performing for? Uh, they're performing partly for uh, their own base, and I suppose partly for the wider body politic, in the sense that they are saying, "Well, everybody else told us that." Uh, there could be no changes, there could be no adjustments. We've held out, we've got changes, we've got adjustments, but those aren't enough. We still have to uh, hold out uh, for more because somebody like Geoffrey Donaldson isn't going to take the risk of saying this is as good as it gets and then face an election where he has the TUV and mm. others uh, coming at them. So uh, they're quite happy being in a position where there is the picture of relative isolation in Westminster. That's the idea of them uh, standing alone and standing firm. Uh, that suits them, that will play uh, to their base. And, of course, they have a sense that while there will probably be no more negotiations as such between the EU and the UK, they know, as they look at the Windsor framework, that there is probably wriggle room and niggle room within the UK uh, side of that. And, after all, when you look at bits of the Windsor framework, different parts of that text are headed draft unilateral UK declarations. So yeah. they're saying, if it's draft, we can get a change. If it's unilateral UK, we can get a change out of the UK, and that doesn't affect uh, the EU. So as far as they're concerned, there is leeway. And I know people were saying to them yesterday, you know, this is the last chance, trains pulling out of the station, all those sorts uh, of cliches. They know rightly, based on the experience of this process, that there always is going to be uh, a bit more room uh, from the British government and that there will be a degree of sign-off on that from the Irish government as well because that's been the form in this process. Yeah. There's always I, been more negotiation. Do you think there'll be wriggle room, though, on, on the Stormont break specifically? Well, the Stormont break, when you look at the Stormont break, you kind of see... It, it, it's almost like one of these things of storm and break bingo. You, you have to have an awful <laughs> lot of things before it actually counts. You, know, you yeah. have to show it's substantive. You have to show it's having an impact on the everyday lives of communities. You have to show that's going to be enduring. Uh, you have to show that you've used uh, good faith efforts to try to influence before that. You could look at all of that and say, well, it's going to be very impossible, almost impossible to win on that scratch card. Mm. Uh, so, And that's why people have said it's a last resort and whatever. But when you listen to the debate yesterday in the House of Commons, uh, there was a point where Chris Heaton-Harris, as the Secretary of State, he actually used the line, he said, 
This means that unless there is a cross-community yes, the British government will have to say no. Now, mm. that takes the Stormont break into a very different territory of interpretation and application than the language of the Windsor Framework did, and then on the, all the spinology that was going on from the governments and all the rest of it around it whenever we saw uh, that text first, because those words will be taken by the DUP and will be driven like a wedge into every possible interpretive bit of politics uh, beyond this. And they will say, well, the British government said in the floor of the House of Commons that this means that unless there is a cross-community yes to new EU legislation, the British government has to say uh, no. And so there are serious difficulties still with the storm and break, with the politics of the storm and break, and the politics of clarifying yeah. what the storm and break <laughs> means. Uh, I mean, and, and indeed, it might never be. Well, I mean, is, is that, I mean, and it's not an uncommon thing for Northern Ireland politics, a bit of fudge helps, really, or a bit of, you know, ambi creative ambiguity helps. Uh, yeah, well, the phrase I used during the talks was collective ambiguity, <laughs> uh, because sometimes, and sometimes it is creative, and, and, and sometimes uh, it's more evasive. The, the point is, in the storm and break, people are looking at it too much as a veto, and of course that's how it's been promised, and yeah. in many ways that's how it was sold. Unfortunately, the British government got into the language of veto uh, around that. Uh, you know, so the idea of opening up a veto bar for vetoholics, the idea that there's going to be enough in it for them, uh, just doesn't stack up. They will always be looking uh, for more in that sense. The real point about the storm and break should be that the provisions of the Windsor Framework are spelling out things that were in the outline planning permission of the protocol, but maybe weren't coloured in as well as they should be, and that is that there would be inputs from a working executive. There would be inputs even from the North-South Ministerial Council, whose mm. views can only come forward if they're agreed by ministers in the North on a cross-community uh, basis. So the fact is, when it comes to future EU laws that could apply to Northern Ireland, the idea that there's a complete democratic deficit, that we'd be taking rules in which we've no say, when you read the original protocol, and it's now subsumed into the Windsor framework, it was always the case that there was going to be the opportunity for influences and inputs to come in the shaping uh, of such laws. And indeed, the European Parliament, way back alongside the protocol, had a resolution saying that when they were going to be dealing with any legislation that might have effect in Northern Ireland, they would be having, you know, in the jargon, upstream engagement, that they would have early consultation mm. with not just political parties, but also sectoral interests, civic interests, the, the, the stakeholders here. So I think if we put the focus on the possible influences and inputs there could be to EU law, rather than this obsession around the idea of a veto as though it's the case that future changes to EU law are going to come out of the blue as edicts from Brussels that nobody has heard about or known anything about in advance. So if we concentrate on the degree of consultation, input and dialogue that there will be for the stakeholders and for the parties, rather than focusing on the whole negative thing of uh, a possible veto that can be used absolutely unreasonably just because it's there, as we've seen too often in the past. Yeah. We are coming up to the anniversary, as you know, the, of the Good Friday Agreement. Since the Good Friday Agreement, how has Derry changed? Uh, well, Derry has uh, changed enormously because of the peace process. Mm. Uh, and we sometimes get the history of some of these things wrong. Remember, the peace process 
predated the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, the Good Friday yeah. Agreement was a product of a peace process, but it was a product that consummated the peace process in agreed political structures that everybody could give uh, their uh, allegiance to. So Derry has, uh, has built on that, not as well as we could or should have done, and that's not uh, Derry's fault. The fact that we have had institutions uh, on an up-down, uh, stop-go basis has meant that Derry hasn't benefited from some of the longer-term strategic uh, initiatives that uh, should have taken place. Uh, sort of funding programmes that we created post-agreement, like the executive programme funds, that were very much geared to helping a place like Derry and some of those needs, those funds were subsequently done away with as a devolved choice, not as a direct rule uh, choice, bizarrely. So, and then when you look at you know a major issue around Derry's uh, uh, viability and standing as a city is university status, and while there has been progress in terms of numbers, in terms of some development, it's nothing like as the fourth city uh, on the island. Uh, it doesn't rank where it should rank mm. uh, in terms of university status, either in terms of students, in terms of uh, research capacity or anything else. And that's something uh, that needs a focus, not just at the level of regional government, it needs a focus at a north-south level, and it needs greater commitments uh, from the UK as well. And in fairness, parties locally have been working through things like the idea of a city deal, again, which is a concept that came through uh, on the Westminster side, it came through in Whitehall, and it took ages to get people here to agree, yeah, let's go for a city deal. People said, oh, that means doing a deal with the Tories, or that means whatever, whatever. And so Derry then, by the time it came to getting uh, a city deal, even though George Osborne back in the day was willing to make Derry the first city deal in Northern Ireland and really wanted to do it, and he wanted to be seen to be doing a deal with Peter Robinson and Martin McGuinness, um, local regional politics in Northern Ireland stood in the way of that. So whenever Derry ended up getting the city deal, it was for a lot less money. And, of course, it was in circumstances where Belfast was getting a bigger city deal uh, as well, (laughs) just compounding the problem of second city. You know, the second city was meant to get the first city deal. Instead, we got the second Mm. uh, city deal. So, uh, and while that's frustrating, the fact is very good work has gone on in the city, so many people in so many different uh, sectors. But this is a city on a border. It's a city that suffered directly from partition. It suffered hugely from the Troubles. And it has benefited from the peace that it's pulled itself up uh, by its socks. But it needs more support. It needs more uh, interventions. And that's why the sort of soundings of support that are coming from uh, initiatives like the Shared Island Fund and the, and the Shared Island Unit are so important. Yeah, because you have spoken about creeping borderism. What, what, what is that? <laughs> well, that was one of my fears uh, at the whole time of Brexit, whenever the whole idea of Brexit uh, was looming. I'd always expressed the fear that you would have incipient uh, borderism that would come thereafter, that the risk wasn't going to be that we were going to see like a restoration of the big physical border. Borders, uh, border structures that we saw before, or like armed checkpoints uh, on borders, it was that the danger was going to be that there would be incipient borderism. Because whenever we negotiated the agreement, uh, and again, this is sometimes forgotten, remember, we already had the single market. The customs borders had already disappeared. Mm. The only visible border that was still on the island was the security border. And as John Hume constantly argued in negotiation with Jerry Adams and others, the thing that will keep the security border there is an ongoing campaign of violence. If we want to remove the security border as well as the customs uh, border and those dimensions of the border, we need uh, a committed uh, peace. We need a cessation uh, of violence. So then when we were negotiating the agreement, we took the single market, 
We took the lack of a customs border or a trade border as a given, and so the concentration in the agreement was about how we could improve structures of policy cooperation and coordination, not just for border areas, but also on an all-island basis, taking advantage of the fact that we were in the same single market, we were in the same EU, an awful lot of the funding and policy frameworks were going to be the same. But once you have Brexit and once you have divergence Mm. in the UK, deliberately pulling away for the sake of proving this is why we needed Brexit and people saying Northern Ireland has to be part of that UK divergence, then the basis of commonality uh, on the island gets strained, it gets stretched. And so rather than reducing the borderism gradually through the north-south ministerial structures, you end up with uh, incipient borderism emerging. And of course, it's forgotten that the protocol only deals with goods. The protocol doesn't deal with services, yeah. doesn't deal with qualifications, whatever. And so we are going to see elements of borderism creeping up uh, there. There's going to be issues for the existing north-south bodies that we uh, created after the agreement, because some of those bodies were only agreed by unionists on the basis that they could say, well, those bodies are dealing with a lot of EU stuff and that's all technocratic. There's no big sacrifice of ministerial responsibility there. But if if the common ground of dealing with the transposition of European directives or handling European money isn't there as part of the working remit of those bodies, then what is? You know, so people who valued strand two and the idea of the implementation bodies are going to be looking around in a couple of years' time and saying, sorry, they're not what they were. They don't even have... They'd limited status to begin with. They've even less status or currency now. Are we meant to pretend the tyre's only flat at the bottom now? <laughs> Mark, thanks a million for coming in to speak with us today. That was uh, Mark Durkin, their former Deputy First Minister and leader of the SDLP. Moncrief on News Talk.